If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of John. It's the Gospel of John. We will begin our new sermon series this morning. You can find uh, John's Gospel on 148 in your pew Bibles. Being called one of the four Gospels, it might be helpful to define that word. Um, strictly speaking, that word means good news. We ask, what is the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ has come. He lived, He died, and He rose again to forgive sinners of their sin. If we but trust in Him by faith. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all specifically go over this life and this ministry of our Savior. If we want more specifically the purpose of the book of John, and really the why behind starting this series, why start our first sermon series is John, you can go to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He tells you very plainly why he wrote this letter, and I will use this as the defense of why we are going to be spending the next several weeks studying it. John chapter 20 Verses 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, being the book itself, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so, the purpose that we will be after over the next several weeks as we study this book together will be to know Jesus Christ as Son of God, and that by believing in Him we may have life, rich life, full life, life in a way that the world cannot provide. My prayer for all of us and my prayer this week has been that you all will know or already know Christ in this way as Lord and Savior of your life. And so by studying this book you will come to a deeper understanding, a greater joy, a, a more sweet relationship and fellowship with the Savior. There may be some of you here that do not know the Lord. And if that be the case, my prayer has been and will be for you that you will come to know this joy, this truth, this happiness, this peace, which can only come from trusting in Jesus Christ. I cannot offer anything sweeter. I cannot offer anything more important or more meaningful than these truths here. And so this morning we're just going to begin, and we'll go over a little more introduction to the book in just a moment, the first five verses of the first 18 verses which comprise a poem or introduction to the book. Would you hear the word of the Lord this morning? John's Gospel, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please bow with me as we pray? Let us pray. 
Almighty God, we have just declared that this is your word. Because we have heard from you, we now plead that you will speak to us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you give us understanding? Would you give us joy in that which we have just listened to? Lord, we need to know you. We need to know Jesus Christ as the word of God. We need to know him as the truth. And so I pray, Father, you grant this request this morning. As we continue through this series, Lord, in the coming weeks, would you continue to impress upon us that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God, and that by knowing him, trusting him, and committing our lives to him, we might have life in his name. It is with joy I ask these things, Lord, and trusting that you will grant them, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's vitally important anytime you come to a passage of Scripture that you understand the context within which it is found. This is especially true when you start a new series, a new book. You want to know what is this book about? What is the background information? Why is this important? Or to put it differently and quite plainly, why does this matter? And so I want to give you just a moment of a brief background and introduction to this gospel letter. The first thing I will say is it was written by John. And you may go, well, Pastor, what? of course it is. It's, written, it's titled John. But you wouldn't believe the uh, debate and the commentaries uh, about that. Um, although most conservative scholars, I dare say almost all of them, agree that John of Zebedee, the apostle, wrote this letter. And in fact, I'll give you just a few points of external and internal evidence so that you can have uh, assurance that indeed he was the writer. This will be important as we go through it. We can go to um, people such as Papias, who was the bishop of Hierapolis in the Roman province of Asia between A.D. 60 and 140. He confirms that John of Zebedee wrote this letter. That's an interesting date range because that's within the range that this letter was written. And so a man living when this letter was written says that John of Zebedee was the author. You can go to Clement, who um, some of you may be familiar with, the head of the school in Alexandria in AD 190, says that this should be attributed to John. And then Irenaeus, 120 to 200, gives the most uh, credible uh, uh, a testament that John wrote it. He, of course, lived between 120 and 200. He personally knew Polycarp, who personally knew John. And all of these sources tell us definitively that John wrote the letter. But of course, we don't have to look outside the letter. We can actually find evidence within this letter that John wrote it, despite the fact that he doesn't tell us that. And that's probably why there's some debate or discussion. If we went internally, we could look at such passages as John chapter 21, verse 24. This passage tells us that it was written by a disciple, a disciple who was a witness to that which took place. And then if you match that with John 13, 23, we're told this was written by the one whom Jesus loved. That more often than not, most often, in fact, was attributed to John, son of Zebedee. And so we believe that the apostle wrote this letter as an eyewitness. And thus what he says is true. Thus what he says can be trusted. 
Uh, scholars also believe that this was written somewhere between AD 80 and AD 90. Conservative scholars uh, have that early of a dating. And this is significant because in AD 70, if you recall, the temple, Jerusalem, is destroyed. The people are scattered. And most likely this gospel is a response or a reaction or a source of encouragement to those fleeing Christians. And so John writes to a people in distress. John writes to a people that are scattered, that have lost their identity, that have lost their livelihood, that have lost everything dear and precious to them. It is with that backdrop and that background and that mindset that we hear these words. And so I'll, I'll tell you, um, you may find yourself asking this morning, then why is it significant to me? Well, aren't we a scattered people? Aren't we a people that suffer much loss and discouragement and dismay? Aren't we a people in great trouble and trial and difficulty? And when you start thinking that way, isn't it good to hear from someone who heard from his Savior? Isn't it good to hear his words as the Lord speaks to us, a people not in the exact same situation, but in similar situations? I would argue that this letter should bring us a great deal of comfort. And yet at the same time, and, and I'll also admit, this letter will be a challenge. This letter will challenge us in a great many ways, for its theological depth should not be underestimated or taken lightly. So much so this morning, we're just going to attempt to cover the first five verses. The first section is actually the first 18 verses, which is a poem uh, that sets off the, the letter as a whole. But we're going to get as far as we can into the fifth verse this morning. And we're going to see it in several different ways. The focus in these first five verses, of course, is this idea of the Word. The Word of God. And the active work of the Word of God and the significance of the Word of God. And because we won't get to that verse this morning, I need to take you down to verse 17 when I say the Word, I want you to hear what I'm saying. The Word of God was with God, and the Word of God was God. The Word is Jesus. So there's no spoilers here. I'm, I'm, we're not going to save that for later. You need to hear that now. When we talk about the Word, we are talking about Jesus Christ. As we look at this first point that the Word was before the beginning, we're saying Jesus was before the beginning. I was reading a, a wonderful book this week, and I encourage all of you to, to pick it up if you're a reader or just love to, to study theology. Uh, it is a somewhat of a commentary, somewhat of a series of sermons by a theologian named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer wrote a beautiful book on this letter called, And He Dwelt Among Us. I've been reading it devotionally this week. It's been so rich to my life. And in John 1... Verse 1, he titles his chapter, God has put everlasting into our souls. He spends a whole chapter on John chapter 1, verse 1. God has put everlasting into our souls. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, what does this verse sound like? When you heard those words, where did your mind go? Hopefully, it went back to the first book. To the book of Genesis. For in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 we hear something very similar, don't we? In the beginning God created the heavens 
and the earth. And then John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John's intention here is to point us back to creation. He wants us to think about those moments when everything came into being, when there was nothing but God, and then God speaks, and then there is life and light and a universe and a created order and creatures and man. But John adds a layer to this idea, doesn't he? Genesis says in the beginning, God created. John says in the beginning, the Word created. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, what do we mean by that? What, what, what is the, is, is John saying something different? Is he contradicting Genesis? I would say by no means. And so, what does he mean here when he adds this new layer? Well, let's think about what it doesn't mean. This is important, and you'll, you'll hear this quite often as we go through this gospel, for much heresy has come about misunderstanding these verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You should not read that, as our Jehovah's Witness like to read that. The Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That is not what John is saying here. John is not attributing to Jesus a, a minor level of deity, that he is one of a God. He's one of the gods, the minor gods. I, I think of, um, of Greek and, and Roman mythology here, and they have tiers. You've got the upper gods, and then you've got some of the lower class gods, and then you've got even below that, and then we're somewhere at the bottom. This is not saying that Jesus was a God. He's amongst the list. He should be numbered there. If you take this reading, you would contradict the um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You'll run afoul of uh, several errors due uh, to misunderstanding and misinterpreting the Trinity. You'd also deny the affirmations given in the Nicene Creed. And oh, that we'd have time this morning to unpack this. This in and of itself is a series that needs to be had. But suffice it to say, it is not proper to read this as Jesus is one of the gods. But neither is it appropriate to read this statement. The Word was with God, and the Word was like a God. Here, you can have all sorts of issues, because you're reading Jesus not as a God Himself, but He had qualities like the gods had. He had the characteristics, the attributes. Uh, I, I think of the, the Disney, um, the older Disney Hercules, when um, Hercules is trying to get back to his, his deity form, and he had to do things like gods did. He had to act like them, and in the eyes of the people, he had to be like a god, and then he would realize that he is one. You run into all sorts of problems if you attribute that to Jesus, that he had to get there. He had to earn his right to be called God, that he was going to work on it, work toward it. He was like one, not yet. That's going to give you all sorts of problems with the salvific work of Christ. That's going to give you all sorts of problems with Jesus being our second Adam and him being an appropriate substitute for us on the cross. And there's a lot of ways you can run afoul there. So what do we do, Pastor? Um, you've, you've given us a couple of theological errors this morning. What do we do? 
Well, you read it like it says. Simple enough. You read what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and Word there is capitalized, for it's a title for Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Period. Read it like it says, and you come to the conclusion, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ was at the beginning. Jesus Christ was with God and was God. And so what is John doing here? Why is he telling us these things? Why is it important to establish Jesus Christ from the beginning? Why do we need to, to know, was it not enough just to say that God was at the beginning? Why does it have to be Jesus? Well, remember his thesis. That you may know Jesus is Son of God, Savior of sinners, and that by believing in his name you may have life. The only way that will work is if he has the power to do it. And what better place to root his power in than in creation? What better place to establish his authority in being eternal and being present at the very beginning? The word Christ, it literally translates as anointed or chosen one. Christ was chosen by the divine counsel of the Lord, to be the one who brings salvation and deliverance from our sins. The only way he could do that is to have the power and authority to carry it out. But another reason I believe that John gives us this, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is back to Tozer's comment. I love that chapter that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We are eternal creatures, dear friends. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we appreciate it or not, we will last forever, either in paradise, in God's presence, resting in His goodness and His mercy, or in a judgment eternally for our sins. And Tozer makes the case in his commentary that we long, we crave, we hunger this reality. And I would dare say if any of us really searched our hearts this morning, you would say it's true. And I know this for these reasons. Aren't we extraordinarily sad when someone gets sick or when we're told that an illness is terminal? Why? Why does that make us sad? Well, because it reminds us that this world is broken, that in some ways we are finite, that it's not going to last, but we want it to. We want to last. Don't we excessively go to the gym or should, and don't we eat right or should so that we can prolong life? I, I remember a nutritionist telling me once, optimal health is simply the slowest rate at which one can die. Isn't that a depressing thought? We, we try to extend things. We, we try to span things out, don't we? Why? Because we are created in the image of an everlasting God. We're created in the image of a God who is eternal. And He made us to be like Him in many ways. And one of those is that we crave eternity. But here's the problem with that. You only get it in Jesus. The only place you can find it is in Jesus Christ. 
anything else you look for, fame, fortune, money, possession, notoriety, whatever it may be, it will fail you. Look, I better be careful admitting this, but uh, two ways I can prove this is true. Growing up as a child in Ackerman, Mississippi, I had two sports teams that I loved dearly. One, Mississippi State University, and two, the Dallas Cowboys. If you want two teams to teach you humility and the futility of worshiping sports, I could not pick two better teams than those. They fail. They fall short. They make lousy gods. Why? Because they're finite. The only place we're going to find peace and happiness and contentment is in the infinite. And there's only one, and that is God. And so John starts us off here. He, he kickstarts this section with pointing us to Jesus Christ as eternal. But it's not just that Jesus was there at the beginning, sitting back going, well, that's interesting. I, I like the way you did that. Huh, let's see how that plays out. No, as we shift to our second point, we see it in verse 3 here. The Word, being Christ, not only was present at the beginning, but He created all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So let's state that differently. Thinking again in mind that it's, it's Jesus Christ we're speaking of. In the beginning, all things were made through Jesus Christ, and without Jesus Christ was not anything made that was made. It's not just that Jesus was present in the beginning, but that He was Creator. Go back to the Genesis 1 account. We can, we can verify this. We can do it very simply. How did God create in Genesis 1? What are we told? By the word of His mouth. By His speech, He creates. What is John telling us? In the beginning was the word of God. Right there. Genesis 1 John 1, affirming Jesus Christ as the creator, and as we'll see in a moment, sustainer of life. And this does volumes for the authority of Jesus, doesn't it? For who better to go to when we have problems, when we have crisis, when things get hard, when difficulties arise. One of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture comes in the book of Job. After his nagging wife and his terrible friends spend several chapters telling him to curse God and die, God himself addresses Job. And he says, prepare yourself for a defense. Stand before me like a man and give answer to that which I'm going to ask you. And then God, from, Genesis, or from Job chapter 38 to Job chapter 41, bombards him with a string of questions, effectively giving Job an education in creation. Over and over again, God asks Job to identify things like, how are goats birthed on top of the mountains? Can you number the, the, the little ones? I can. Who hung the stars in their place? That's me. Where does snow come from, Job? Tell me, where do I keep my storehouses of snow to divvy out as I wish? Who can tame the Leviathan? Do you even know what a Leviathan is, Job? Why does the wind blow as it does? And on and on and on he goes for chapters. 
And Job said, I opened my mouth when I should have kept silent. I spoke without understanding. I have no clue who you are, God, and I yield and bow and humble myself before you, for you are my creator. The point is made that God and God alone knows these things because God and God alone is creator and the one who controls them. But it goes further than that. You can go look at the 139th Psalm. It's not just that that God keeps the sparrows in the sky and He keeps the fish swimming in the oceans. God cares for us. So much so, the 139th Psalm says, God knit us together while yet in our mother's wombs. He knows the days of our lives. He's numbered them. He knows our thoughts before we think them. And yet He cares for us. And all of that, John is saying, is Jesus Christ. Far too many people question Christ, His ability, His authority, His power. Why turn to the Christian God? He cannot help me. My problem is too great. He doesn't know me. He doesn't understand me. All of that falls apart when we understand this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with Him in the beginning. All things were created through Him and by Him was not anything made that was made. hope that came out positive. Sometimes I get bad trouble with my negatives. Jesus made all things. And so who are you going to turn to when you have a problem? When you have a struggle? When your life is hard? When you need help? Who do you turn to but the one who made you? Who do you turn to but the one who understands you better than you understand yourself? He knows you so well that he knows your greatest need was salvation. He knows your greatest need was forgiveness for the sins you have committed against him. And so he, before you ask it, before you have chance to plead with him, he died for you for the forgiveness of your sins. He knows you that well and is capable and able and willing to carry that out. Without the word of God, there is no hope. But in and through Him there is life. We see this in our final section, verses 4 and 5. John has made the case that Jesus, the Word of God, was present at the beginning. John has made the case that Jesus was active in the beginning. And then here in our final section he says, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so I ask you this morning, are you alive? I mean, physically, are you alive? Are you here? If you are, it is because God has ordained it to be so. Do you ever stop and thank Him for things like that? Really, do, do do we really appreciate the fact that you're here, you're breathing? That's because God has said, keep it going. Keep the systems running. God did not simply create and tell his creation good luck. He did not go, well, let's play with this like a child's toy where you wind it up and see which way it's going to run off. And then it falls off the stairs or it goes into the wall and it's like, well, that's unfortunate. That's not how our God operates. John tells us here that there is life and light 
in Jesus Christ. In Scripture, that idea of light, which is one that John will come back to again and again and again in this gospel, it has to do with God Himself. When there's light, there's illumination, there's understanding. We're to think of our Lord. We're to think about how He gives us understanding and clarity. We read the Ten Commandments this morning, and one of the things that does is praise God that you give us an ordered world. But then as we did this morning, it it has us go, oh no, I'm a mess. Light illuminates the things that we'd rather keep hidden. But it gives us hope because it reveals the truth. The prophet Isaiah exclaims in uh, chapter 9, often read at Christmas, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah was pointing forward to a time when Jesus Christ would come. And his foretold coming is what brought light to the people of Israel. And for us today, we look and say a Savior indeed is born. And how powerful is this light in life? How powerful is Jesus' ability to sustain all things? Well, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And guess what, dear Christians? It won't. It has not and it will not, for it cannot. If the light represents God, quite often darkness in Scripture represents Satan, the things of this world. Darkness cannot overcome light. You want to try an experiment to see if this be true. Um, Wait till late at night tonight. Probably not this weekend because you're going to have incessant fireworks for the next few days. But get, get in a dark place in your house. Get really somewhere dark. Take up a flashlight with you. Make sure it's got good batteries or you're going to ruin my illustration. Turn on that light and see if you can find a place dark enough that that light cannot dispel it. Jonah tried that, didn't he? Jonah tried. He said, if I go to the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a well, that will be far enough away. And there he prays, oh, you're here too, God. Can't do it. I cannot outshine the darkness. Or I cannot outshine the light with darkness. In Christ is life. I love how one commentator describes it. He says, darkness is almost personified here. Darkness is unable to overpower light. By this, John summarizes his whole gospel. Light will invade the dominion of darkness. Satan, the ruler, and his subjects will resist the light, but they will be unable to frustrate its power. Thus, the word will be victorious in spite of strong opposition. So what will we do over the course of this series? We will seek the light. We will seek life, which only comes in and through Jesus Christ. So in way of conclusion this morning, I I speak again as I did when I started. If you're here today and you do not yet know the Lord as Jesus, as Savior, you're in darkness. And you feel it. And I know you feel it. I know you feel the crushing weight of eternity upon your heart and your inability to be satisfied, to be content, to be at peace, to have rest. You can have that peace today if you have the Word of God. Jesus Christ, who has died and rose again. If you are here today and you do know the Lord is Savior, and maybe you're in a season of struggle, of trials, of difficulty, I ask you this, how well are you doing at receiving the Word of God? 
Are you observing His Word, His sacraments? Are you engaging in prayer? Anytime I've done pastoral counseling, anytime someone comes in with a problem, that's going to be the first thing, probably one of the first things I talk to you about after I, we discern what is the gospel. How well are you doing at receiving the Word, the sacraments, and prayer? How well are you partaking of them in your own life? And more often than not, as it's in my own life, it's like, oh no, I've, I've kind of been neglecting those things. Well, no wonder you're fumbling around in the dark. Maybe you're here today and you are trusting in the Lord and maybe you are walking in His light and you are in a season of joy. Well, here's the beauty about the light of God. When it shines in you and through you, it not only helps you see, but it helps others see as well. One day, Lord willing, we'll get to the story of the woman at the well. Beautiful, beautiful story. And what happens when she comes in contact with Jesus Christ, her Lord and Savior, when He transforms her life, what does she do? She runs to the very people she's hiding from. The very village that scorns her and hates her and despises her, she runs to those people and says, you've got to come to this man, for He has given me life. And so, dear Christian, take heart, rejoice, and don't be afraid to let the light of the Word of God shine in and through your life. We teach it to our children. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hind it under a bushel, bush? No. Let Satan blow it out? No. I'm going to let it shine. And it will, because his light is greater than darkness of this world. Let us pray. Almighty God, what a joy it is to be studying your Word what a joy it is to hear your truth this day. Oh, we need it. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, we need you more than we need the air in our lungs, the lights in this room. More than anything else this day, we need you. What a joy it is to see Jesus Christ from the beginning, to see his active work in creation, and to know that he sustained all things and continues to do so even to this day. And the fact that we are here, that we are breathing, that we continue on in this moment is a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is doing that which he said he would do. Oh, Lord, would you continue to work in us? Would you continue through us to let your light shine to this lost and dying world? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.